Love what you hear? Be sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, and even our D&D adventure. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And today, getting a little sad, getting a little post-apocalyptic over in Russia. um, And talking about one of those kind of, not underperforming, but kind of like undersold FPS fallout-esque type games yeah it's definitely sitting in a sphere i think that people are really familiar with but there are so many titles that just sort of explored this apocalyptic type of atmosphere in the shooter genre so this is definitely a game that maybe went under the radar for a few people and you know i'm stoked to talk about it absolutely and and that's really why we wanted to bring up metro 2033 this as well is a book adaptation brought into the gaming sphere, very much like what we saw with The Witcher. I guess that is kind of like an Eastern European thing. You take a book, you slap some cool characters into it, and you make a game. I'm looking at you, Poland. I'm looking at you, Ukraine, trying to do these things. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's great, right? Because when you take any kind of adaptation from a book, you just have so much source material that you might not have um, if you were just trying to make a game up from scratch. And so having a book beforehand, Metro 2033, just gives you plenty of leeway and room. At the same time, you kind of end up maybe upsetting some people that are fans of the book beforehand. Sure. Because you don't maybe translate it correctly or something like that. So it's a double-edged sword, but it does give you plenty of ideas and maybe you don't have to focus in as much on the creative stuff inside, but you can sort of work on game mechanics or you can work on uh, little details within the game that you might not otherwise have time to because your resources are being pulled toward creating designs and creating these totally original things without really a descriptor on where to go. We see that even in just film genres, in the Harry Potter series, in the Dark Tower adaptations. You know, it's one of those things where how much creative license do you take? How much of the source material do you understand? And it's always those things, too, of like you may picture something when you're reading one of those books in your mind that visually appears different or that may be different in those sakes. Good, bad, and the ugly, uh, it kind of goes either way. But for the most part, the Metro series and its continuation have done really well. And Studio has done amazing work with this and creating those fear-based aspects of it, the what-ifs, and really knocked it out of the park. Well, in games like this, too, you can sort of, maybe if you're having a hard time, maybe you're not as imaginative or... You do have that, you know, that image in your head. And that can mm-hmm. change when you play a game or you watch a movie. And now you can go back and read the book sort of in a different light if you enjoy this game. And if for some reason you didn't and you just like the book more, then you could do your best, maybe just like toss all that out. So it's really, you know, win-win. Either you get more or you just give something a shot and, hey, you like the book anyway. So, yeah. You know what, Derek? Options. Options. So let's options, baby. Options, baby. So let's start today with Metro 
2033 is a 2010 first-person shooter video game developed by 4A Games and published by THQ. Rest in peace. The story is based on Dmitry Glukovsky's novel of the same name, where survivors of a nuclear war have taken refuge in the metro tunnels of Moscow. Players control Atrium, a man who must save his home station from the dangers lurking within the metro. In the game, players encounter human and mutant enemies, who can be killed with a variety of firearms. Players must also wear a gas mask to explore areas covered in fallout radiation, both underground and on the surface. Metro 2033 was the debut title for 4A Games, whose founders had experience working on Stalker, Shadows of Chernobyl, at GSC Game World. Glukowski chose 4A to adapt his novel due to the studio's location in Eastern Europe and their expertise in developing first-person shooters. Glukowski gave the studio a lot of creative freedom. 4A focused their efforts on storytelling and atmosphere, intentionally avoiding any multiplayer gameplay to achieve their goal. The game was powered by the studio's own proprietary 4A engine, and it was first announced in 2006 as Metro 2033 The Last Refuge. The game was released in March 2010 for Microsoft Windows and Xbox 360. Critics gave the game positive reviews, with praise for its horror elements, detailed environments, and interesting plot. However, the game was also criticized for its bugs and artificial intelligence. Metro 2033 was profitable for THQ, selling more than 1.5 million copies by June 2012, though the publisher felt that their marketing efforts were rushed. The sequel, Metro Last Light, was released in 2013, with Deep Silver acquiring the publishing rights from THQ after their bankruptcy. A compilation of both titles was released in 2014 as Metro Redo or Metro Redux for Windows, PlayStation 4, and Xbox One. A third installment, Metro Exodus, was released in 2019. And so bugs and AI, I feel like, were so hit and miss in the Xbox 360 Mm -hmm. era. You either had some really solid AIs or some really bad ones. And I think that they're still almost kind of figuring that stuff out in shooter games yeah. and first-person games. Because you sometimes you just have partners that just sit there and they let you get you know attacked alive and all the enemies just hone in mm-hmm. on you specifically. So this game... You know, there were times where like they're in the middle of dialogue and they're like, wait, wait on my signal. Then we're going to go. And it's like, you're already being like half eaten. It's like, no, dude, yeah. like we got to go now. We're, we're shooting stuff now. You're just a little bit behind. Yeah, the 360, the PS3 era was almost like a testing ground for this, this next gen. It was next gen for a lot of stuff. And this is when they first started to dabble into it. And it worked for the most part. But you're right. There are even within Call of Duties and other, you know, bigger name for uh, first person shooters, you still had that in the campaigns. You still had plenty of those things, even jumping over to Halo for a lot of that stuff. It's a bug. I mean, it's, it's, it's a programming language that had to kind of be built to like allow a thing to basically think, think in, you know, only so many command lines of code, but for it to think. And when it like, it airs in that process, it's like, dude, I don't, I don't know. I can't figure this out. So yeah, absolutely. And so studios of all kinds, Definitely struggled with that, whether it be big ones, little ones. It doesn't mm-hmm. really matter. You know, everyone was figuring all that stuff out. So let's talk about 4A Games. 4A Games was founded by former developers from GSC Game World. Andrew Pokorov, Olev Shishkostov, and Alexander Maximchuk 
They, together with Sergei Karmalski, formed the core team of Stalker, Shadow of Chernobyl, which was in development at GSC in the early and mid-2000s. Prokhorov had disliked that Sergei Grigorovich, the chief executive officer of GSC, prioritized money over his employees, withholding royalties for games the company had produced. The situation came to a high point when the two fell out over wages in 2006, leading Prokhorov and two of the company's lead programmers, Shiskotsov and Maximchuk, to leave the company and found a new studio for a games with the intention to treat its employees better than Grigorovich did. The company's first game was Metro 2033, an adaptation of the novel of the same name by Russian author Dmitry Lukovsky that was announced in 2009. The game was released in March 2010 on the Xbox 360, as we had said, along with the Microsoft Windows, and was generally well-received. Following their initial success, 4A Games began work on the sequel, Metro Last Light, which was announced during the 2011 EEE, or the E3, convention. The game faced several issues during its production, whose release date was delayed from 2012 to 2013. The most significant setback for the company occurred in January 2013 when the game's publisher, THQ, closed down after declaring bankruptcy and auctioning off most of its intellectual properties. The publishing rights to the Metro 2033 franchise, including the sequel, were sold to Coke Media for $5.8 million on the 22nd of January, allowing the company to finish making the game. Metro Last Light was finally released on the 14th of May in 2013 and was published by Coke Media's video game label, Deep Silver. On March 30th, 2014, a remastered re-release of both Metro titles under the name Metro Redo was leaked and confirmed the day after. The compilation was released in August 2014 for 8th gen platforms, and in 2017, the company released a virtual reality game, Arctica 1. During the 2017 E3 convention at the Microsoft press conference on June 11, 2017, a new game, Metro Exodus, was announced for its 2018 release. Gameplay was shown to both announce the game and act as a graphical showcase for Microsoft's native 4K-focused update to the Xbox One hardware, Xbox One X. The game was released in 2019. And on the 12th of May in 2014, amidst the Ukrainian crisis and following the annexation of Crimea, by the Russian Federation. 4A Games announced that they were to expand by opening a new studio and moving their headquarters to Malta to allow for easier operations inside the European Union, with the Kiev studio continuing to operate for Eastern European operations. The company was acquired by Sabre Interactive under the Embracer Group for approximately $36 million US million in August 2020. The publisher of the Metro series, Deep Silver, was already a part of the Embracer group via Coke Media, making the acquisition a sensible one for both groups. In the wake of Russian forces threatening to attack Ukraine in February 2022, Sabre Interactive stated that all the employees at 4A's Kiev studio can relocate to other Sabre-owned companies abroad if they choose to. So definitely, you know, an, an older game series per se, but even stuff that's hitting today of, of real world things, uh, you know, happening with what they had to do. And, and it's, it's really interesting to see. And it's, it's one of those fun things to see when you have like a group of employees like, hey, it kind of sucks working here. We can do this on our own. Let's go ahead and take our idea that we have. 
let's reach out, you know, to this author and, and see if we can collab on this thing. And when you get a, you know, you get the green light with that, that's amazing. You know, there are plenty of, of professions, I think, throughout the world where you have all these really skilled, talented people who run the company a lot more than you expect them to. And having, you know, three developers all leave to go form their own company, I'm sure really hurt their previous company, you know, in, in ways that maybe their boss didn't know at the time. It's hard to say because there's not a lot of information on it. But, you know, having that knowledge and having that expertise and getting, you know, the backing uh, from THQ mm-hmm. to make a game like this to start this entire franchise. I mean, it really goes to show how skilled they truly were for those people to believe in them. Yeah, and to, to come off of Stalker, um, which was another big title at the time, in that double-A range of games um, that had a similar setting, in a way, um, that kind of worked on that Eastern European front and kind of first-person shooter, apocalyptic in a way, but more along that like double-A FPS-style game. And to come off of that and be like, hey, we have the expertise. Let's make this really cool series and make it really story driven and not do multiplayer. Even like, you know, as it went through where, you know, in that 2010s, like that's what was coming out. Like, like that was the era of hitting into, you know, different FPS games kind of then coming up to in a couple of years up to that battle royale style of gaming. Like, like it started to build from that. But to start with just this single-player FPS, and then do well with it, pretty cool. Yeah. So let's jump into how they started to develop the game. So Metro 2033 was developed by Ukrainian studio 4A Games, founded around 2005, as we had discussed, had a little break, made their own thing, and went off. And as they started to work with Glukowski's novel, they realized that, you know, it was inspired by the books of Roger Zelensky and Ray Bradbury, as well as the first Fallout game. Years before Glukowski was offered a book publishing deal in 2005, he uploaded the manuscript of the novel to his personal website, leading a number of game studios to approach him for a potential adaptation of his work. Glukowski was open-minded about studios creating new chapters in his Metro series, describing this as much of an honor as getting the book screened and turned into a movie, and hoping that this would grow the audience for his fiction. He also felt that a game adaptation would allow him to focus on other projects, leaving the Metro universe in the careful custody of other artists. Glukowski ultimately chose 4A Games because they shared an Eastern European mindset, both having a first-hand understanding of the collapse of the Soviet Union. He was also impressed with the team's previous work, as well as their pitch to adapt Metro as a first-person shooter, since the book reveals the thoughts of the protagonist, though it is written in the third person. Bukowski gave Foray a lot of creative freedom, otherwise ensuring that the game was true to his story, themes, and meaning, and rewriting the dialogue for the Russian version of the game. According to Bukowski, the main theme of Metro 2033 was xenophobia, particularly the human reaction to the mysterious Dark Ones. He also saw it as a coming-of-age story for protagonist Aryum, as a young man trying to find the meaning of his life. The game does feature political satire and social criticism, particularly about modern Russia, but this was not intended as the game's focus. The game differs from the book by offering two endings, which Glukowski felt was an interesting choice to give the player. And we've talked about that in the past, where 
video games, even though they share the same word media with books, movies, TV shows, things like that, it is a kind of personal element to it because you're playing it. You're actively doing something in it. And when you give the player choices, whether, you know, again, this is just kind of like ending this way, ending A, ending B, Mm. it still gives them agency in that piece of media that they're playing. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the best things that a video game can do is make your choices actually matter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe you don't care and you just want to go on the rails and you just want to play and shoot through and maybe like a a Halo style thing where you're just, you know, the ending is the ending and you just like the story. And I think Mm -hmm. that those games can be really good too, as long as they're not putting you in these situations throughout that are like, should I do A, should I do B, and then making none of it matter. You know, yep. if if this has two endings and it's giving you hypo, uh, hypotheticals or different game paths and then always brings you to the same ending road, well, it just doesn't really have the same impact. So definitely a good choice, and I'm always happy to see it in any game. Absolutely. The game utilizes 4A Engine, a proprietary game engine developed by 4A Games. It was developed by programmers Oles Shishkotsov and Oleksandr Maximchuk, who had previously worked on the X-Ray engine for the Stalker series. Gregorovich accused 4A Games of using the pre-release versions of the X-Ray engine, but Shishkotsov responded by refuting this. First, the GSC engine did not work on home consoles, where the 4A engine was designed with this in mind. Shishkotsov also described how the 4A engine began as a pet project due to his frustrations with the X-Ray engine, before expanding his project with the 4A Games team. So a slided boss returns. Yep, where it's like, hey, you guys stole my tech. And it's like, what do you mean your tech? Like, first of all, we made this. Right. Second of all, like, I did this on my own time because I already knew how to build that portion of it. Right. And you guys also didn't do it for this, this, this. So I guess come after us if you want, but no. Yeah. The studio's goal was to focus on atmosphere and story, having been largely inspired by Half-Life 2. They hoped that their narrative focus would help the game stand out from other post-apocalyptic titles like Stalker and Fallout. According to producer Hugh Bainan, they strive for every scene to contribute to the game's narrative, describing this as cinematic. Since it was not practical to turn every major plot point into a cutscene, the studio instead strived for an immersive atmosphere by using both environmental storytelling and incidental conversations. For instance, non-playable characters have their own daily routines and frequently gossip with each other. The team also included a lot of quieter non-combat moments to improve the game's variety, pacing, and sense of discovery. The team decided to keep the HUD minimalistic, to keep the player immersed in the game world with fewer distractions. Instead, the game puts many of its cues in the environment, such as the player viewing their objectives by physically opening Artem's journal. The team also focused their resources exclusively on the single-player experience, deliberately avoiding any multiplayer component. And you really do see that shine through. And and I love that they've continued that on through the Metro series, not just in the novels, but in the games themselves. Um, If you've watched the Exodus trailer, uh, it's really cool that it's kind of this fireside talk, this very calm moment to go through it, but then expands as like these characters talk to those like, big Gregorious moments of fighting and uh, the upper world, like going through the waters, and uh, various other elements of it. But it gives you this quiet moment, which a lot of shooters 
try. Call of Duty's tried it, but it's more in a cutscene and less in like having those moments of reprieve. Right. And more of just like, here's a cutscene. Anyway, back to the combat. Like when you're right into the battle, best of luck. I think another game that did this really well was Gears of War. There were these mm-hmm. moments where you're just kind of walking through a camp or you're walking and then obviously something pops out of the ground for the most part or you plan to go on a mission where you're going to have to fight. But there are moments that are not in cutscenes where you're just kind of walking through and talking to people or listening or catching up with your teammates and it makes you feel more attached to those teammates. like. Yep or squad members, whatever you want to refer to them as. Whereas I agree with you, Call of Duty does attempt to do that sometimes, but for the most part, it's because you're being sneaky. Like when I think back to Modern Warfare, for instance, Mm -hmm. you know, there's that sniper level where you're in Chernobyl and it's you and another guy and you're basically like just kind of slowly communicating and softly communicating, but you're just, that's because you're being sneaky and stealthy. Yeah, so there are those moments, and that that is a level that does stick with me because you're right because it is it, it it does have your heartbeat kind of going because it is this like you have to take your target out, like you guys have to do this. You have to be quiet. You have this one shot to take. So there are those elements, but with this and around that time is where we do start to see those games that do have those I wouldn't say hub worlds, but have these quieter towns you can go to. Um, I, Look at all like the zombie games that started to come out around this era too, where you have like this hub you can go back to where people have the routines. You have kind of the angry person, the quiet person, like, like Dying Light is another one that you kind of have that in where you can get your quests and stuff from. Um, and it really does affect those pacings and it makes the game, I think, like you said, more enjoyable and you get attached to characters, which is one of the hardest things to do in a game where it's like, why should I care? Right. Why should I care if this character maybe dies? Maybe you fall in love with them. What, what, even like as an actor, it's kind of like an actor. What is my cue? What, what is, what is my reason for this? And if it's more so like, oh no, this person died in this cutscene, like, okay, <laughs> that right. sucks, but I guess we'll keep going. <laughs> well, and in Call of Duty, for instance, like the big plot twist kind of come when you, the first person player, dies and then that character's mm-hmm. gone. And so you, then you have to play as someone else for the rest of the game. And so you have the attachment and invest investment in that character because it's you. It's, mm-hmm. you know, if one of the other guys die, like there's maybe one guy that if he died, you might be like bummer, like Captain Price. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's maybe the only one because he's there literally all the time. All the other guys yeah. kind of like, yeah, they died. Uh, who's the guy that dies like pretty much right away in Gears of War 1? The skull face guy. Carmine. Yeah. Didn't really feel much for that. But like no, when cause, Dominic cause, dies, you're like, oh, yeah. man. Like, the, yeah, those are the big things is like how because the first person shooter genre has evolved over time. I mean, it, it, it has become like somewhat of an RPG FPS. Like, like, how can I bring these elements in? And we see that with Metro. Metro's continued that has continued a reason to like want these characters to succeed in a fictional world, in a world where a lot of us in the Western half can't relate per se, or, or like it, like because Russian is such a far off language that you do kind of get desensitized to that. So it is one of those things where like, how can you really build this up, make you care 
but also complete the game. Like it, it, it's, it's a good formula. And for being such a small studio and producing these games, like 4A has done really well. Well, and the U.S. games, too, I think, have a tendency to always lean very U.S. heavy. So to be yes. able to, like you said, just show you that perspective from like a, a Russian squad who's having to live in this post-apocalyptic world and to try and get a Western audience to feel sympathy for these characters, I do feel like mm-hmm. there's a little bit more of a challenge there because the environment's not recognizable. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I play a Fallout game and I see like the uh, the White House in disarray, like, okay, that makes sense to me because I've seen that. And I know what that is and what it really means for the country. But like, you know, in Chernobyl, I never lived in Eastern Europe. Obviously, I mm-hmm. wasn't impacted by that directly. And so to get more of a environmental impact and an impact in those characters on the Western side, I do think is, is a big challenge. And I think they did a good job. And that's one of the big things to sell. I mean, to, to Western audiences where, you know, we are, like you said, very heavily invested in the U.S., which is a lot of games are based there and usually the good guy. And to be able to change that and see different points of views is great and to great to the brain to a, a huge audience. And one thing that did help at least sell the game over to THQ was its marketing. So in August 2006, 4A Games first announced the game as Metro 2033 The Last Refuge for both PC and PlayStation 3. THQ's Dean Sharp saw early footage of the game at a trade show, incidentally around this time that Sharp was also promoting Stalker, Shadow of Chernobyl. Sharp was impressed with Foray's work and convinced THQ to become their publisher, which later led him to join Foray Games as CEO. THQ officially announced the partnership in October 2009, revealing the now-renamed game Metro 2033 for both PC and Xbox 360. The decision to skip PS3 was a business decision for THQ and not a technical limitation. Metro 2033 was marketed on Steam by offering Red Faction Guerrilla with pre-orders. THQ also released a limited edition for the game, including the game disc, four art cards, and a replica of an in-game automatic shotgun. I'm curious about the business decision. I, I guess that really was one of the most heated times of the console wars. Because this is Microsoft's second console. They're putting a lot of money into it. And Sony was kind of ostracized at that time for, for some of these decisions to bring stuff exclusively to Microsoft products. Yeah, I think that the Xbox 360, I mean, obviously their internal IPs were solid. Halo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All their exclusives, I feel like that's probably the best era of exclusives. And I hate exclusivity. I really do. Like, oh, yeah. I, I want it to go away forever. But um, as far as, as exclusives go, I don't think you could beat the Xbox 360 versus the PS3. But I Not had an Xbox really 360. Had. So. <laughs> yeah, and like, I had... This is very sad. This is Alex's story. I bought a PlayStation 3 three times. Um, I bought it to play a game, played a bit of the game, realized I didn't really like the game, then sold it, and then another game came out and I bought it, and like, that was my history with Sony. I never really was a Sony person. I now own a PlayStation 3 again to play some older games like Last of Us and things like that. But in the heyday era, like I just never became a Sony fan. I, I was stuck with Xbox. Like you said, Xbox knocked it out of the park at that time with Fable, Gears of War, Halo, Forza, like all these different titles. And then getting some of the exclusivity 
with these type of deals, bringing THQ, bringing like Saints Row type stuff and other things that like got exclusive Xbox things really brought it up to market. Yeah, they, they definitely did a great job with that. So let's talk about the actual gameplay a little bit of Metro 2033. It's predominantly set within the tunnels of the Moscow Metro, as we said, though some sections take place on the surface in the ruins of Moscow. The story is told through a linear single-player campaign, and important plot moments are shown during cutscenes. The human and mutant enemies can be killed with a variety of firearms. The game features traditional guns like a revolver, assault rifles, shotguns, as well as more inventive weapons like a pressurized crossbow. In firefights, human enemies take cover and flank the player, while mutant enemies stay in the open and try to bite them. Alternatively, the player can employ stealth to evade their enemies or kill them silently. This can be achieved by using a throwing knife to kill an enemy from afar or shoot an enemy with a suppressed weapon. The player can recover health by waiting for it to regenerate or by using a med kit to heal themselves immediately. The game features a minimalistic heads-up display or HUD. Game information is presented to the player via audio and visual cues. For instance, players must inspect their weapons to see if they are about to run out of ammunition and therefore have to reload. And I'll say one of the things that's really interesting about the audio in this game is that you have a comm, but if you're standing really close to the person talking to you, you actually hear them talking and you hear it in the comm. So they added that little detail in, which I... You know, I've never seen in any other video game, I don't think. And I don't know that it's, I will admit, I think it's a little distracting. Like, it is realistic and it makes sense, mm-hmm. but it is a little distracting because there's that slight delay of, like, I yes. hear the voice and then I hear it on the comm. Which, it does seem that a lot of Eastern European studios do this and do it well. If you want realistic style gameplay like this or Escape from Tarkov... Those um, are more of those games where, like, yes, you have to check your ammo counters. Yes, like, it's a realistic sense of, like, if you're shot a couple times, you're gone. And, and like you said, like, the comms thing. Because most games in the comms, it's, like, if they get far enough away, it turns on comms. If they get closer, it is their voice. Like, like it, it just does an auto switch based right. on proximity base. Whereas this is that realistic thing where, like, you are talking to all your teammates, but you're also maybe close to someone. So you have to have both lines of communication basically open for that. Right. Since the game has a large survival horror focus, the player often has little ammunition and must scavenge for supplies from caches or dead bodies. An essential supply is pre-war military-grade ammunition, which is also the main currency in the tunnels. This ammunition can be traded for weapons and upgrades or used directly as stronger bullets than other scavenged ammunition. As most of the tunnels feature little to no light, the player can use a flashlight to explore dark areas. However, the flashlight needs to be charged with a battery charger in order to stay effective. The player must also use a gas mask to explore areas affected by radiation, both underground and on the surface. The gas mask can be damaged in combat, which forces the player to find a replacement. Player survival also depends on constantly replacing the air filter, which they can monitor by inspecting Artem's wristwatch. Throughout the game, there are certain moral choices that can be made. If the player is compassionate to the people living in the tunnel, such as giving the homeless some military-grade ammunition, they may be able to watch a different cutscene at the end of the game. 
These moral choices are never explicitly mentioned, and it is possible to play through the game without knowing of their presence. Which I think just totally comes down to how you play video games. I know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I have friends who just, they just run through. Like, they're playing an RPG, they just want to get through it. It's, to me, sacrilegious. That's absolutely, that's bizarre, especially in an RPG. In a first-person shooter, probably a little bit more forgivable, but at the same time, like, I'm usually going and trying to talk to everyone who has a prompt, unless it's mm-hmm. being, unless it's, like, very obvious that they're not actually giving me anything yeah. useful. They're just telling me, like, stories about their life, like, oh, yeah, I've been in the tunnels for, what has it been? I don't even know time anymore. <laughs> and then you hear that like similar dialogue seven times. And I'm like, all right, I'm, mm-hmm. out. I'm out of here now. There's too many of you. But you find cool things in video games that, you know, you wouldn't know. That goes all the way back to my Pokemon days. Like, hey, you want to trade Pokemon with me? You get this cool Pokemon you've never seen. Hey, I'll give you this item. Like as soon as that was in my brain, I'm like, yes, I'm going to talk to everyone all the time. Yeah, and it and it really kind of brings you along the path of, of getting that reward system in there, of being like, not in a gambling way, but it is, where it's like, I talk to this person, ooh, they don't have anything, next person, next, next, oh, but I do get something from this. And, I mean, that is why I have such a plague of not finishing RPGs, is I try and like 100, even though I'm not trying to 100%, my brain is, because it's like, oh, it's a side quest to go get 10 feathers, I gotta do it. I can't leave this man hanging for his feathers. What am I going to do? What kind of person am I if I leave this random stranger with no feathers? You best believe in Assassin's Creed. I collected all them feathers. Give me that cape. <laughs> exactly. Every time. Mom yeah, needed those so it, feathers. <laughs> so it, it, it really challenges that in this game, too, of having somewhat of that RPG element, having a horror element, and having that realistic element of like, hey, like, you know, Fallout has bottle caps as a trade, which is kind of like a silly thing of like Nuka-Cola is kind of like the thing that runs it. So like capture the trade. Whereas this is very real. Here is really high end ammunition. It's going to be currency. I can use it to defend myself, but I can also use it to buy things. Right. And I think that's such a realistic look at a post-apocalyptic world where like currency has no meaning. There's no backing to it. What backing does it have? And so when you actually have to be like, hey, Here's some stuff that kills things. I will trade you this for this in this barter system that becomes new currency. Absolutely. No, definitely a very clever way of addressing that, I think. And 100% your values would shift. So, yes, anytime you could get ammunition, that's the valuable thing, right? You need to be Mm -hmm. able to defend yourself. Maybe it could be like food on a lower scale, things like that. Exactly. Yeah, it, it kind of has its own intrinsic value, also depending on how bad you need it. Right. So we've talked a little bit about it, but let me break down the actual setting of when and where this is taking place. So Metro 2033 takes place in the city of Moscow, Russia, 20 years after a global nuclear holocaust in 2013. Moscow has become a wasteland filled with killer mutants in irradiated air and becomes uninhabitable for humans without protective gear. The remaining population that survived now lives inside the Moscow Metro which is described as a labyrinth of railways, tunnels, and bunkers. Inside the metro, food, water, and supplies are scarce, which lead to the formation of factions, most notably the Hansa, the Red Line, and the Rangers of the Order. The metro is dilapidated, 
with some places even requiring a universal charger in order to activate certain gates or switches. Other areas of the metro are also irradiated and filled with water or debris. Some areas contain anomalies or the supernatural, which can cause psychic damage towards those that approach those areas. On the surface, the city is desolate. Air and water are contaminated with radiation, and nearly everything is covered in ice and snow. While uninhabitable to humans, the surface is home to many mutants, especially the dark ones. The overall tone that the game tries to capture is a grim and melancholic feel, as well as displaying the miserable lives of people who survived the Great War. Yeah, definitely cool. Definitely a pretty classic tale of, uh, I think, post-apocalyptic, especially like the mutant stuff. Mm-hmm. The effects, the side effects of what nuclear war would do. Let's talk about that a little bit more, the actual story behind it. In 2013, nuclear war devastated the Earth, wiping out billions of lives. Among the affected nations is Russia, including the now desolate wasteland of Moscow. A handful of survivors managed to hide in the metro system, salvaging spare parts and growing mushrooms for food. Animals such as rats or bears have mutated into horrific monsters, while the air in many areas becomes heavily irradiated and impossible to survive in without the gas mask. There is a constant state of war between Stalinists and Nazis, while opportunistic bandits seize hostages and supplies in the metro tunnels. The rangers emerge as a neutral peacekeeping force within the metro. By 2033, the northern station of VDNKH, now called Exhibition, is attacked by mysterious creatures called the Dark Ones. An elite ranger named Hunter asks for support from a 24-year-old survivor named Artem, the adopted son of the station commander. Before leaving to track the Dark Ones, Hunter gives Artem his dog tags and tells him to present them to his superiors in Polis, the capital of the metro. The next day, Artem signs on as a guard for a caravan headed to Riga, a neighboring station. Along the way, the crew is incapacitated by a psychic attack, but Artem is not affected. After the caravan reaches safety, Artem meets Bourbon, a smuggler who offers to take him to Polis. The two make their way through several stations and tunnels, and even pass through the surface of Moscow itself before Bourbon is killed by bandits. A traveler named Khan then rescues Artem. Khan! <laughs> After escorting Artem through haunted tunnels in an embattled station, Khan advises Artem to meet his contact Andrew the Blacksmith, who lives under the control of the Red Line, a Stalinist regime. With Andrew's help, Artem sneaks out of Red Line territory, but is subsequently captured by their enemies, the neo-Nazi Fourth Reich. Artem is rescued from execution by two rangers, Pavel and Ulman, before Pavel eventually dies escorting Artem out of Reich territory. Now traveling alone, Artem comes across a group of survivors trying to stop a mutant horde from reaching Polis. Although they fail, Artem manages to rescue a young boy before they escape, and the defenders help Artem reach the surface. There, he reunites with Ullman, who takes him to meet Miller, the colonel of the rangers in Polis. The Polis governing council ultimately refuses to help Exhibition, but Miller tells Artem his backup plan, a missile silo known as D6 that could destroy the Dark One's hive in the Botanical Gardens. To find a way to D6, Miller tells Artem to meet him at the Moscow State Library to search for a map. As he makes his way to the library, Artem is forced to continue alone while avoiding mutants. 
he eventually finds a map and flees with the help of both Miller and Ullman. They recruit Artem as a ranger, who joins an operation to locate and reactivate the D6 command center. After their success, Artem and Miller climb Ostinko Tower to install a laser guidance system. Soon after, Artem experiences a vivid hallucination induced by a dark one. After the hallucination, there are two possible endings depending on the player's choices throughout the game. In the canonical ending, Artem allows the missiles to fire, destroying the dark ones. The alternate ending gives Artem the choice to destroy the laser guidance device, citing a last-minute realization that the Dark Ones were using the hallucinations to make peaceful contact. This ending is only available if the player has performed certain compassionate acts, such as helping fellow humans and not fleeing the Dark Ones in various hallucinations. So a little bit of a twist there. Mm-hmm. But you could understand the natural fear that you would have of the, if you played this game, and most of the early Dark Ones are just coming at you. Yeah, and it, and it really causes that idea, and tropey in a way, but very much like, hey, are they actually bad? Or, like some sci-fi, are they like ascended humans now? Like they have psychic powers. We're like, hey, we're just trying to survive as well. What if we coexist? You know, in a way of an idea of that. Like, is that a possibility? So it definitely gives that player kind of that option of like, it's very early on in uh, Fallout 3 as well. Do you take out this town by detonating the atomic bomb? Or do you deactivate it and let them live in peace? It's kind of that first choice, last choice type idea for both games. Yeah, and so this one, I think, had some soft choices that could be made. Like it was saying, mm-hmm. where it's a lot of the stuff is skippable. And then, yeah, I mean, you totally don't know. But I think the idea is that, uh, especially... If this is Artem's coming of age book, you know, the player can then live out. So what is Artem's coming of age? Is it just trying to survive or is it trying to like pay attention to what's going on around him and and helping Mm -hmm. people actually within the Metro system? And so the ending makes sense in that regard. Metro 2033's original soundtrack was composed by Alexei Omolchuk and Jagoji Belaglazov, also known as Anastasia, and was engineered by Dmitry Kuzmenko. The soundtrack includes a total of 51 tracks that draw on the ominous atmosphere of the post-apocalyptic setting. The soundtrack has received high praise from fans and critics alike for doing a good job of adding to the overall experience of the game and heightening the tone of the game. While most songs of Metro 2033 do not have definite names, Many have been proposed by fans and song uploaders. So, yeah, this was that weird kind of soundtrack that was more like, we put it together, here you go, and less of that, like, we used this type of thing and this orchestral component, which they did. They used a lot of guitar and a lot of classical guitar to kind of humanize a lot of these different moments that kind of slow it down uh, versus some of those orchestral bigger pieces during fights. And during like moments of betrayal and death, it it's not quite as iconic, obviously, but it reminds me a little bit of the Halo soundtrack, mm-hmm. where you have these kind of like rock parts where you're feeling like a little bit more heavier guitar or whatever, where you're running through these levels, and then it has like little moments that like like you said are more orchestral and 
just do a good mix and I think a pretty classic like 2010s game yep. makes sense. Yep. So let's break down the release versions and then also the redo or redux, depending on how you would like to pronounce it and hit that hard X or hit the redo like it's supposed to be said. <laughs> so the game was released on March 16th, 2010 in North America, March 19th, 2010 in Europe. Immediately after the game's release, the studio announced that it had begun developing downloadable content for Metro 2033. The content was later revealed to be the Ranger Pack, which added two new weapons, as well as a Ranger mode that removed the HUD and reduced the ammunition supply while boosting damage. The pack was released on August 3rd, 2010. Reflecting on the game a year after release, THQ's vice president, Danny Bilson, admitted that the game was not properly supported in all areas, signaling out problems with product development and marketing. Bilson also described the game as an orphan stepchild, as the publishing agreement with 4A Games was signed late in development, leaving less time to properly market the title before release. And that's why, if none of you have heard of this game or didn't hear about this game until the later titles, that's kind of why it just kind of was released. Here you go. You like the apocalypse? You like shooting things? Bam. Bada bing, bada bam. And really, looking at the cover of this game, it doesn't, it's not the most eye popping cover either. I really do think this is one of those games that you just kind of had to take a risk on if you wanted mm -hmm. to play it. It was, it was very much those like, Next gen kind of turn games, kind of like Infamous. Um, the other game is kind of like Infamous that everyone says it is, but it's not because I can't remember the name. Uh, and various other like shooters that were starting to get this sci fi element, this post apocalyptic element. They all kind of bunched together in those few years. Definitely. And really, I mean, the cover itself was just like red and black with like a white, like big, bold font and mm -hmm. just kind of gritty looking. I mean, this game, if you saw it on a shelf, it was probably blending in with a lot of other titles at the time. So definitely mm -hmm. hurts, but uh, the fan base that it has is very dedicated to this game. For sure. So on the 22nd of May in 2014, a redo version of the game was announced, featuring updates to the 4A engine from the development of the sequel, Metro Last Light. This led to graphical changes such as improved lighting, animations, and particle effects, as well as dynamic weather. It also allowed gameplay changes from Last Light, including improved controls, combat, stealth mechanics, and AI. This also added Last Light features to 2033, such as silent takedowns, customized weapons, and the ability to wipe gas masks. The redo version was released on August 26, 2014 in North America, the 29th in Europe for the PC, PlayStation 4, and Xbox One. The re-release also led to a compilation package with both 2033 and Last Light. The redo version of the two games were published by Deep Silver, and a demo of the redo version, which allows players to play through the first one-third of the game, was released for the PS4 and Xbox One on June 2nd, 2015, and was later released for the Nintendo Switch on the 28th of February in 2020 definitely some huge quality of life updates that made the game a little bit more immersive, but also just so much better. Like adding some takedowns, you know, instead of just like throwing a knife or firing, you know, a, a silenced ha uh, handgun, it allowed for just like that so much more immersion of sneaking up to opponents and just 
especially the ability to wipe the gas mask is like one of those like little things mm-hmm. that does add that immersion to it. I love when game companies go back and do this. Like if you're going to release a remastered version, please include those quality of life updates where it's just mm-hmm. making the gameplay make more sense because you were limited by stuff. You improved upon it in later games. Hopefully you did it right and just really built engines that were backwards compatible almost in a way. I think about games like um, one that I really wish had turned out better was like when they redid San Andreas Rockstar and they added that just new style that. <laughs> of of shooting and, you know, the more modern style. Because that was one of the hardest parts about playing those old games. The targeting system was really mm-hmm. bad. It's unfortunate how bad the the graphics and things and almost Almost being. every Rockstar port has been, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was pretty awful. But... I'd like to see more of that in games as well. Yes. Because I'm a slave to nostalgia. No, it it is there. But it's also those things of like, you know when a studio is passionate because they will go back and do this. Like, okay, cool. It's been years. We've learned more. We've improved our engine. We've added more to our new game. Let's go ahead and do this. That will bring even more fans into this. Because again, I don't think on release, a lot of people heard of Metro 2033. But then when you have Last Light, which is the first I had heard of it at the time, then you have like the redo come out and you have like, okay, let's play through it again, but with a modern feel. So it doesn't feel dated. Because that's the thing too, is how can you keep a nostalgia factor, keep the feel and look of it, but modernize it in a bit, especially FPS games. Nintendo has a special place where they can just make their game and the controls kind of work on whatever thing they built with it. Yeah. But when it comes to like FPSs or games that you can tell have aged, this is also like, 2008 to like 2012 was that era where you can really tell things did not age well, like 10 years from like now, yeah. I guess you would say. Yeah. Um, but to like allow it to do this and give the update is huge. Well, and as these uh, game life cycles just continue to expand, I know that it's a little bit, it seems like a money grab a lot of times when a game company just re-releases a, master, a remastered version or whatever. Yes. I think that game companies, developers, they, they need to be doing this, and this should kind of be like the, the format, where maybe a game now has gone on to have multiple sequels, and you might lose some of the players because if the story has continued for so long and you don't, maybe you don't remember the original games, and maybe mm-hmm. you are just wanting to play it for the very first time, but you want to have the full immersion... Having those games available on newer consoles while also having those quality of life updates, I mean, I'm more likely to buy a game again if it has that. Of course, like, I don't want to drag out the Xbox 360 every time I want to go back and and play an old game. But I also don't want to buy a a game that is just basically a reskin just to have it on my new console. Which I think is why Microsoft is doing so well with that right now especially with Game Pass, like having those older games on there now where it's like, I don't drag out my Xbox. I can be on my PC or my new Xbox and play those older titles that may not be remastered, but at least I have the option for it. And then, you know, you can fault it a lot on release, but present day, like Master Chief Collection is such a great way to go back and play all those games in the various options they have of upgraded graphics or not, yep. but to have it all in one hub, which they are, I believe, doing with the Gears of War series. It was rumored with that coming out that they're going to try and do a hub world for Gears of War, which might make me go back and play through it. 
those Game of War games, man. Gears of War games. So, so hard. I hope that a remastered one... They, that first one is really tough, I think, to do solo. Yeah. And, and, and you know, as they, they go on, like, the story is fantastic. And I recent well, recently-ish, finally played through Gears 5, uh, which I actually enjoyed. I know there's, there's hit or miss marks with it. I enjoy the story progression they made and the returning characters they brought into it. Um, but we shall see. We shall see what other games companies do, like you said, to like not just do... You can either go the, the Grand Theft Auto route and make the worst ports ever and actually make the game worse, or do you go around like a redo or like some of these other like options that they're building out in these like Unreal Engine 5 looks of it how do we kind of get that middle ground? Absolutely. So we're going to have our coverage. We're bringing it up. How did you all and the public and the reviewers respond? So Metro 2033 received favorable reviews from critics upon release with an average score of 79 out of 100 on Metacritic. Most critics agreed that the game was a compelling and engrossing experience undermined by inadequate gameplay systems and poor AI. The game's story and pacing received acclaim from critics. Phil Collar from Game Informer praised the main campaign's variety of scenarios and set pieces, especially the climax of the game's story. Eurogamer's Jim Rossignol also liked the campaign's variety and cinematic sequences, highlighting how the action is expertly punctuated with unexpected experiences. Justin McElroy from Joystick also liked the story, praising the characters are as likable for their courage and resilience. IGN's Ryan Clements felt that the game included interesting sights and sounds that the game suffered from bland characters and a clumsy story. Jim Sterling from Destructoid felt that the story was decent and the themes were intriguing and powerful, but expressed disappointment that it was not as fleshed out as the source materials. And GamePro's Taike Kim felt that there was not enough context for an otherwise strong backstory as he never fully understood the world, making the game an awkward entry point to the fiction of the novels. I disagree with those those latter ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is pretty apparent, even if it is somewhat loose, which I disagree with as well. But even if you think it's loose as a story point, if you can't understand a post-apocalyptic story, I don't really understand what you're doing. Right. Yeah. It's it's not hard to put it together. Post-apocalyptic. I'm down in the tunnels. Can't go up because radiation is a thing. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a pretty simple setting and leading into like here's the railroad that we're putting you on for these tracks you got to do this 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 to do this here's these bad guys and i think that's the issue too sorry other tangent but like within sci-fi you don't want everything explained to you in sci-fi of why things work or why things are right one that would be hours and hours and hours of backstory content of like the dark ones anyway let's go back to like this it's like this is what the character knows so, like, you wouldn't necessarily know that thing unless you were the source material. Right. Like, I don't need the science behind a laser beam gun. Mm-hmm. I just, exactly. I just need a laser beam gun to shoot things. <laughs> and it's exactly. like a real gun, so I understand it right away. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. The atmosphere, on that note, was often considered one of the game's highlights. Matthew Pellet from Games Radar described the setting as evocative and compared the game favorably to Bioshock and Half-Life 2. Writing for GameSpot, Chris Waters praised the atmosphere as oppressive and that the relentless gloom can begin to wear you down. 
The dialogue between non-playable characters was often praised for making the game world more immersive. McElroy highlighted details such as the wristwatch and battery pump for adding to the sense of immersion. Rossignol described the game world as one that is heaving with apocalyptic detail and praised the gas mask for inducing a claustrophobic feeling. Sterling felt that the game's unforgiving gameplay also facilitated players' immersion. He added that 2033 was one of the most traditional survival horrors to be seen in years, as players must survive the tunnels with a bare minimum of resources, making the experience more intense and frightening. Kim also praised the 4A engine for bringing this desolate and sad world to life, and applauded the developer's effort to interweave gameplay with the narrative. Tom Ori from VideoGamer.com also applauded the game for its visuals and immersion, but criticized the game's linearity and loading screens. Critics had more mixed opinions for the gameplay. Waters praised the game for rewarding players for exploration as well as the game's diversity of weapons, however, felt that the weapons were not interesting enough. Rossignol liked the scarce ammunition and survivalist elements of combat, but felt that the inaccuracy of the aiming system was frustrating. Collar agreed that the aiming and the control was too loose. Sterling also analyzed the combat, expressing that it was better as a survival game than an action game. Sterling and Clements criticized the stealth mechanics for bugs, with McElroy remarking that enemies become invincible during certain animations. Reviewers also criticized the game's AI, as well as the game's lack of replay value. And I think it was a big problem in games of this era, just the shooting mechanics being loose. Mm -hmm. uh, games now have adapted that sort of like auto lock on thing, where yes. as soon as you look through the sites, it kind of like, as long as you're kind of aiming at someone, it sort of automatically trends toward them. But games yep. from this era, for the most part, were not doing that. And it, it made it more difficult for sure, especially with some of the enemies in this game are like flying around like crazy. Mm -hmm. They're like sprinting around on the ground. Like you feel panicked more than anything. Yes. And this is still the era where a lot of devs are coming off of like PCs and not having that auto aim assist. Yeah. Um, that really wasn't a thing per se. Like it was either insane auto aim where like you like left triggered and you were looking here and you just like went 45 degrees to the right and locked onto someone or there wasn't anything at all. And that's slowly been perfected year after year, especially when games became more competitive and crossplay between PC and console gaming was a thing. Is like, how do you attribute the precision of a mouse with the in, you know, unprecision, bad precision, that word, inaccurate? Inaccuracy. <laughs> Aspect of using, yeah. the inaccuracy of using a joystick, of getting a, like a, a very fine-tuned one without putting it to like the minimum setting of going like a snail's pace. Right, How do you or do like that? buying so caps for your control sticks or whatever. It, to like... Exactly, like trying to do that. So like they've slowly perfected over time. So I can see where that jumps in and creeps in, especially in a game like this that is very scarce ammunition. And you've got to use what you got. And if you miss, that's a, that's a big miss versus like, oh, it's fine. I've got, you know, like 10 more magazines to throw in here. It's all good versus like I have seven shots to like nail this down. Yeah, I, I wonder if they had maybe would have had a better experience if they had reviewed it for PC specifically. Yeah. Yeah, to kind of see what that would work with. But yeah. alas, we may never know. But Metro 2033 was the fifth best-selling retail game in the UK in its week of release, beaten by fellow new release God of War 3 and titles including Battlefield Bad Company 2, Final Fantasy 13, and Just Dance, greatest game of all time. 
THQ describes the game as very profitable for the company. CEO of THQ, Brian Farrell, added that due to the low cost of development in Eastern Europe, modest levels of sales would already guarantee Metro 2033 as a commercial success. The game was significantly more popular in Europe than North America, as you and I discussed. Like, that was kind of like a, we didn't really see it too much until we saw, you know, Last Light. In June 2012, it was revealed that the game had sold more than 1.5 million copies. While the exact sales of the game have not been revealed, Deep Silver announced that the Metro Redo collection sold more than 1.5 million copies itself in April 2015. The sequel, Metro Last Light, was released in 2013. The story continues the events from the original game and does not follow any direct storylines from the book Metro 2034. Deep Silver acquired the publishing rights from THQ after they declared bankruptcy, and the third installment, Metro Exodus, was released in 2019. So, obviously did pretty solid for the lack of marketing. Yeah. There's some interesting things kind of about um, this author that have more recently come about with all the tension with uh, Ukraine and, and Russia. And so, actually, in Metro, or the Metro 2033 author, Dmitry Glukovsky, is facing a lengthy prison sentence in Russia over his criticism of the country's invasion of Ukraine. A Radio Free Europe report says Glukovsky was added to their Interior Ministry's wanted list on June 7th for violating a law imposed in March that criminalizes independent reporting and protest of the Russian war in Ukraine. Um, Glukovsky said in a post on Telegram that he is accused of discrediting the armed forces of the Russian Federation for a post on Instagram, which says, Stop the war. Recognize that this is a real war against an entire nation and stop it. Mariupol. I am ready to repeat everything that is said there, Kukovsky said in his telegram message. Stop the war. Recognize that this is a war against an entire nation and stop it. Russian opposition politician Vladimir Milov, also a Navalny associate and investigative journalist Andrei Soldatov, were also placed on the Interior Ministry's wanted list at around the same time as Glukovsky. A message posted to the Twitter account of jailed Kremlin critic Andrei Pivarov noted the addition of Glukovsky and Milov to the list and said that the machine of repression will pass through everyone. So, so still... Go ahead, go ahead. I mean, just kind of crazy that, you know, this guy, he's just an author working on this video game thing, obviously made this post on Instagram and goes from, you know, making this thing that is about Russian specifically in, in its gameplay and story and now is an enemy of the nation. Yep. And, and we see now, I mean, it's, it's a travesty that we have, uh, you know, another major war going on right now and for journalists and authors and artists to be targeted by this type of stuff is unfortunate in these regimes that are trying to oppress what's going on. And it, leads into a lot of the words he has. Like, he's, he's never been, like, anti-Russian in a way, but has had that satirical look at politics. Very much like we have in our own country in the United States and sure. other countries have as well. Um, but unfortunately, when you have something like this that's trying to repress anything going against it, it is a shame. And I wanted to include that. I know it's not game-related or not even to 2033, but to show that, uh, you know, this is a real-world thing that people deal with, and as an author talking about these things, it's an unfortunate consequence. For sure. 
And so on the sad note, <laughs> we will talk about the positives of the game itself. And Derek, as always, let the people know, why did we pick it? And what do you give it? Yeah, so Metro 2033, like we said at the beginning, just a game that might have flown under the radar for you, the listener. But um, this was a game that obviously very like horror, like fear elements and Mm -hmm. things like that. And so I'm going to be totally honest. Like I played this game a little bit, but Derek don't do scary too well. (laughs) Like Dead Space... Got through a good chunk, got too scared. Even Bioshock, I said this in the Bioshock episode, like pretty much like I noped out of there as soon as that lady with the, with the baby carriage mm-hmm, or whatever pulled mm-hmm. the revolver out on me. Like I was pretty much out at that point. So this game, <laughs> you know, I, I did my best to to go through it, but I couldn't couldn't finish it. It's really hard for me to give like a, a full review on it. I Like I said throughout the episode, I think that it did a really great job. I think the environment does a good job of being dark and scary. It definitely fits mm-hmm. into that era of games too, where it's very like gray and grim and all that stuff. A lot of like tans and the occasional red light, just like on the cover. Yeah. But for me, uh, just scary games make me feel like a scared boy. So I'm going to, I'm just going to give it a seven out of 10. Take that with a grain of salt. Take that with probably the whole container of salt with that. A lot of Toss salt. Toss it over your shoulder, fill the sea, and then you'll Honestly, see Honestly, I might have to anyway. for good luck. <laughs> um, it's, again, like Derek had said, it's a game, especially for us in the United States, uh, that kind of flew under the radar for a bit. It, it, it got mismatched into a lot of double A style games of that time period hitting with those grays those browns those drabness but it created such a cool system that i'm not gonna say it's dark souls-esque but it is different than call of duty battlefield any of those shooters at the time crackdown anything that's coming around that time that was basic basically unlimited ammo and if not that you take an opponent out pick their gum up their gum you probably pick their gum their pack of gum and their gun up because, you know, they have gum all around. We are not doing and a Duke th- Nukem podcast right now. <laughs> Even a Duke, you'd pick up a weapon and you'd have it. So it's changing that up by making this a semi-quasi-realistic feel to what an apocalypse would be like with very limited resources, no production cycle making these resources. So you have to scavenge for what you can. So it did expertly in those. And it started off, you know, a, a really solid franchise for what it was. I mean, it sold a... a plenty of units it's profitable all over and it is in my opinion it carries a very passionate fan base very much like the halo series it's a very passionate fan base that really enjoys the story really enjoys the gameplay mechanics and has stayed true through all these years whether the original the redo or even further sequels so it's really exciting to see so if i had to give it a rating i would give it the dark ones versus the great old ones uh, which is obviously a warlock uh, path that you can go down in D&D. It's, you know, obviously you would do that. Um, divide it by um, how much I really hate mushrooms. And I would probably just die from starvation in this world because mushrooms are uh, disgusting. Um, even sauteed, get them out of here. Fried, I can tolerate. Pizza, no thank you. Um, probably out of... Um, that world would be too spooky for Alex, and I would probably <laughs> uh, just say no thank you out of 10. No thank you out of 10. 
I like it. Nothing at a time. Mushrooms ain't bad, man. Mario does them all the time. Yeah. I don't know what kind of mushrooms those are, but... (laughs) (laughs) Look what happened to him. Research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall and Derek Baker. The intro and outro music for this podcast was written and recorded by our friend Evan Barr. And our artwork was given to us by Aaron Shattuck. And as always, thank you all for supporting the podcast. And thank you on Patreon who are as well. If you want to support us in not just a listening term, but in a monetary term for some perks, check out our Patreon where you have some bonus episodes, some post shows, which we record after this. Talk a little bit about our lives and various research we do, as well as a Minecraft server, our D&D campaign, and various other physical and digital rewards. Check that out over at patreon.com slash finish the fight. And I want to thank some of those members today with Sky the Bear, Mr. Choff, Nick Hyman, Mick Chief, Climbing Spork, Mr. 1898, and Lee Tom John. Thank you so much for the support. If you haven't yet, give us a follow over there on Instagram, Twitter. We're also in Discord, and it's free to join. Alex and I are in there hanging out, having fun. Talking video games, talking other stuff, talking all kinds of different media. Love for you to join. Love to see you there. And as always, you can check us out on Twitch. You can check me out at twitch.tv slash sourman70. That's S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0. As well as Derek over at twitch.tv slash thebakerman247. That is thebakerman247. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, or most likely your favorite podcast listening platform. If you haven't yet, drop us a review. We love hearing from you guys, and it helps us out a lot. And that has been our coverage of Metro 2033. Have you played the original? Have you played the redo? What is your opinion on post-apocalyptic games? They're one of my favorites. I love SAD, apparently, Um, but they're really fun. And as always, I am your host. Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Scared Bear. And this has been Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Mm-hmm.